Welcome to Creative Welly, Courageous Conversations with Bold Humans. This is the first episode and the audio version of what is a video podcast, produced by Empire Films and hosted at X Equals. In this first episode, I got to sit down with Jessica Mannins, co-founder and CEO of Beyond, and also Dr. Saab Johal, clinical psychologist and YouTube creator. Jessica, for the last couple of years, has been building a VR gaming company here in Wellington, but is also serving her first game, her LBE game called Oddball, out in LA at Two-Pit Circus. We go back a long way, as she was also my boss at Biz Dojo. Saab is a friend, comes from London, but has been here for the last 15 years with an immense experience as a psychologist in lots of different areas in the world. He's an organizational coach, a mentor, advisor, and now has turned his hands to creating YouTube videos and has been pushing them out, especially regarding the COVID crisis. In this first episode, we sit down and we mash out around topics such as psychology, personal and business approaches. COVID-19 obviously came up a lot. Our transitions in our careers, leadership, culture, skills, learning environments, emerging tech, tourism and New Zealand as well. So please give a listen and subscribe via creativewelly.com. I'll probably start with you, Jessica. Yes. I'd love to hear about kind of what you're up to at the moment. Yeah. What are you spending your time on? Oh, I'm making a new game. <laughs> so we published our first location-based VR game, Oddball, um, at the start of the year. So this was just pre-COVID. We launched in LA with a really wonderful space called Two-Bit Circus. And Brent Bushnell, you might know him. Brent, You've yeah. met Brent. Oh, he's just amazing. He's actually an Edmund Hillary fellow. Mm-hmm. So he has a lot of contact here in New Zealand. And it was Richard Taylor who had told me about him, actually, because okay. he'd come to play our game, Oddball, and said, oh, you know, you should look into Two-Bit Circus. So we launched that in February um, at Two-Bit Circus, and it was going amazing, lots of people coming through, uh, and then COVID hit. Um, so right now, we, we're, let's just we can talk about some of that stuff later. Maybe uh-huh. skip forward to where we are now. We are making a, a home console version of Oddball. Uh-huh. Um, it's a little, it's going to be a little bit different, but it's for consumers at home who yeah. have a VR headset. So describe what it is, though, because I haven't done it yet, but I've seen lots of videos, oh, and I know yeah. a lot of people who have done it. Yeah, you, me neither. I haven't done it yet haven't either, either, but yeah. I've read about it. And I've yeah. heard other people right. talking about it. So the original game is using wireless headsets. So that means you don't need a big backpack PC when you're walking around. It's wireless, and so you can walk in the game. Yeah. Um, I call it. A, I kind of describe it as playing paintball in a Doctor Zeus world. <laughs> so that's it's cartoony and colourful and silly. So it's you know it's non-violent. So one of the key things we wanted to do when we made the game was not have blood and zombies. Yeah. There's a lot of that already out there, mm-hmm. and. I'm a mum and I don't really want my kids. Yeah, no, I'm the same. You've got to be careful of like, what you expose people to. And yeah. because those things are so like immersive, right? You're in it. It's, yeah, yeah. And the brain, I mean, you'll know all about this, but the brain tricks you, man. As soon as you put that headset on, you're in that game and people are just, they're the character. They're a panda or a unicorn or whatever they choose to be. So you can yeah. choose your character. And the aim of the game is to get the other team out as many times as possible by firing sticky balls or fart bombs at them. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's power-ups that you can find within the game. We've got some fun ones we haven't quite developed yet, like unicorns that chase you 
stab you with their horn and <laughs> kittens that crawl up at you with the be- beautiful big eyes so but actually like deplete your health until you're, <laughs> until you're <laughs> out. What happens with those? Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, and so you, we normally play about five-minute rounds right. and two teams, or you can do all against all, six to eight players, um, all in a big space, about eight by ten metres um, space. That's the crucial bit, right? It's an immersive experience, somewhere physical, it's somewhere with physical. the VR experience overlaid on it. Yeah, so it's a like it's called location based, you know, gaming. And so you go to a place. It's social. You go with your friends or your family, and you play together. Yeah, and you're in the game, and you're walking around, um, and yeah, you know, firing little funny things at each other. And so that's that was the game that we've spent the last kind of year and a half making and launched. Opened up in summer over here mm. in Wellington and then launched with the US being kind of our key market because they have a lot of family entertainment centres, much bigger than we do. Yeah. Um, you know, places like Main Event will have 40 centres, you know, around America and they're huge. You know, mm. you go there and you go bowling and trampoline park and arcading and all that kind of stuff. So was the yeah. idea to licence Yes, the so that's out. exactly, yeah. Right. So us to be the content creators and license out that content and the software that goes with it as well because you've got to be able to manage the game um, and you're using new hardware. So a lot of what we did was, like, you know, a lot of work around making sure that the tracking works correctly when you've got multiple players right. within mm. a space. You know, you don't want anyone colliding. Mm. Um, safety measures in terms of we have these portals that people can transport themselves from one island to another by going through a, a portal. And we've got to make sure we can collide in those portals. And, um, yeah, so, yeah, a lot of work went into kind of the safety measures of the game as well as just making it super fun and like our mission is to make people laugh out loud when they play. Yeah. So that's one of the things I, I'm delighted to hear from you in terms of the values that you imbue into the game development and the company development. Mm. Your principles are very evident rather than most video game makers, bless them. You know, they are about that dopamine hit, uh, engagement, that mm. kind of keep people engaged as much, but you're about actually making people laugh, right? Your values yeah. are purely not entertainment but it's about joy right mm. it's totally about joy it's about bringing more joy to the world i mean i think we all need it <laughs> like, <laughs> right? Hey, right right now yeah especially absolutely. right now yeah. and you know one of the great things about what we've made and now being able to now make this into a console game so you could play it at home is that there's this huge opportunity of people right now being at home, of isolation being a you know bigger issue than ever, and wanting to connect in with each other. And VR allows us to jump into a virtual room, and we could be here on other sides of the world, sitting here together in VR, and then we could play a game. <laughs> so these console basis stuff that you're developing now, that's going to enable people to connect outside of their own home, like um, people playing with each other, but also across the internet and yeah, playing with each other? Exactly. Awesome. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so there's a both options. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. for us here, we're very fortunate. You know, in New Zealand, we can now go out back to the movies. We can go back and we can you can come and play oddball at our space. We've just opened up for birthday parties and corporate events and things, and bookings are coming through, so people are obviously feeling a bit more relaxed and uh, about coming back out again. Uh, but in America, you know, Chibit Circus is still closed, mm-hmm. and a lot of our customers are still closed over there, potential customers. 
So this opens up the opportunity to be at home and play, but still be with your friends socially, having fun and all that stuff that is really important for your well-being. Yeah. yeah. Well, you touched on isolation there, mm. you know, which is a key point to mental health, which I'm going to throw it over mm. to you now, just yeah. because, you know, you're my friend and do- the, the only double doctorate I know in psychology. <laughs> yeah. showing off. <laughs> um, but the isolation stuff, and we've had lots of talks about this in mental health, specifically in New Zealand, how we're kind of playing catch up around our mental health a lot. But with the COVID stuff and everything else, there's a lot of layers to have this discussion around psychology, mental health and isolation and well-being and stuff. How do you see kind of new technologies impacting or playing a role? Yeah, absolutely. I guess I see lots and lots of different opportunities. I also see some challenges around things like digital divides. You know, those people who have access to those technologies and those people who, who don't. And we've seen that, right, during the the COVID um, outbreak here, we saw things like uh, libraries shutting down their Wi-Fi. And the reason for that was to make sure that people weren't too close to each other. But there was also probably a lack of full realization as to how many people come to those places in order to access the internet. Not only for the infrastructure that they have in terms of accessing computers, but also bringing their own devices so that they can access things like news or things like trying to access services, right, or connecting with their families and friends. So there's the, there's the loneliness part of it and connecting in with people in a real way so that you can have conversations that are meaningful where you not, may not be able to see them in real life. But there's also getting help and accessing. And I guess one of my, one of my concerns is that it's great to be able to connect with these things if you have the devices and also if you have the connectivity. And I think that that's part of the challenge of moving towards a more, leaning more heavily on the foot of the digital space to provide that connection, is that actually we have to make sure that we have the infrastructure to support that. And we saw like the Ministry of Education recognize that to a certain extent, Mm -hmm. sending out tablets, sending out computers for those children who perhaps had the connectivity but didn't have the device. Mm -hmm. But there's so many people who still don't have the connectivity. Those people who are perhaps don't have the income to be able to afford it or live in areas where they don't have the the speed that's requisite in order to be able to access these things. So I think that that's that's something that concerns me. And I think that we're not alone. New Zealand is not alone in struggling with this. You know, loneliness is something that is an epidemic of proportions that are bigger than we've probably known for a while um, that we're all struggling with. You know, we have these kind of bubbles that we've been encouraged to live in during COVID-19 times. But these bubbles kind of existed before that too, but they weren't recognized, right? People are kind of living these more solitary lives because they're so taken up with, you know, paying the bills, doing the stuff, looking after their kids, putting food on the table, trying to get clothes, you know, all of these things that are the basics, right? And so they don't have the time or the space or the energy to connect with people Mm. in ways that they did before. And when they do, we need to have, enable, enable that to flourish more, you know, because communities know what's working for them. Supporting communities in order to help people to not feel so alone and, and so disconnected, I think, is the major piece of work that we should be tackling in New Zealand at the moment. So we're not doing that? I think that there are pockets of where it's happening. Okay. But I think that we don't get in alongside these communities enough. Sure. Often we talk and we impose systems down on communities to say, you should try it this way, rather than exploring what they're doing already and standing alongside them and supporting them. 
you know, we see examples of this around the, uh, around the country where it is working well. But the danger is, is that I guess during COVID-19 times where we've all been kind of locked down, we've been looking towards the centre for direction. My concern is that we, we stay in that kind of command and control structure rather than actually giving the power back and saying, actually, you guys probably know, you know the principles. There are certain things that we need to do in order to keep you safe. But in order to get you connected and going again, what are your ideas? How do you know how your community works, how your families work, so that you can get going again? So I'm interested, though, in terms of being two Brits yeah. who find ourselves in New Zealand. And I don't want to speak for you, but feel very grateful for being here and privileged. Uh, not just during this time, but generally. Mm. Uh, so we've kind of got foot in two camps uh, how we see the world at the moment with our parents back in the UK and very concerned. I'm not saying you don't have people that you love and care for around the world, but it does seem like there's two stories mm. being experienced. And then there's this disconnect in New Zealand itself where everybody has a different um, experience of the COVID uh, crisis that had gone on. Some have actually enjoyed it because they've had time to chill out, spend time with their family. Some people have really struggled because of the same reasons. Mm. And then you got, and I know we've got friends who are struggling financially and mm. all those other things as well. It seems like that this is a, a mental health tsunami. I hate to use that word because it seems a little bit kind of moral panicky, but it, it, it feels like this is a start of something that needs a lot of support and education that's yeah. coming up. Am yeah. I wrong to think that? Well, I guess it's probably... There are so many different stories here around people's journeys through COVID-19 around the world. I'm like you, right? So my parents, I had a heartbreaking conversation with my mum just yesterday where she said, I want to leave the house at the beginning of July and I don't know if I'm allowed to or not or if I do, then what do I do? So she's 80, she's an immigrant, her English is kind of like failing, she's kind of like talking more in her first language, which was my first language too, which is Punjabi. And so... She's confused. I'm confused. Mm. I look at the, the guidance that coming, that's coming out from the UK government and I sit there and I'm confused. She's been in lockdown for three months. She's not left the house for three months. She's in her 80s. So long. And it's a very, very long time. And, you know, it's just, I sit there and I go, how, how do I help her? How do I advise her, right? But then if I put my psychologist hat back on and thinking about disaster mental health, we know that actually in any one disaster, about 80% of people are probably okay without any sort of like mental health intervention, so long as they've got access to connection mm. with the people that they love or, and people who they care about and who care about them, but also their basic needs are getting met, mm. right? They've got income. Mm. They're able to like feel secure. They've got water. They've got sanitation. They can pay the bills. They've got secure, healthy housing. Now, all of these basic, big social determinants of health and well-being, all of those things need to be in place, and then people tend to be okay. And then there's the 20% of people who perhaps need more support and you've got a minority of people five to ten percent who maybe have sort of like ptsd type symptoms or severe anxiety you know if you think about all the people who have been working in intensely in health services day in day out all the caring services you know they're the people who are probably more at risk of like burnout and really feeling like they're really put upon with this so yeah i i don't know if we'll see a mental health issue tsunami I actually am reasonably confident that we will see most people get through this okay, particularly you know, in New Zealand. But we also have to understand that there were mental health problems here before, and those are likely to serve us. And what we also know is that during disasters is that the inequalities that existed before 
tend to be increased. Amplified. Amplified, absolutely. So when we look at the experience of Māori going through this, if we look at the experience of Pacific communities going through this, if we look at the experience of people who don't have enough income, who have precarious lives, who are moving from one rental contract to another. We have kids moving from one school to another. They don't have good peer relationships. We have people struggling to put food on the table. All of those life circumstances, as people go through this kind of rebalancing or recalibration of the economy, now that we've had kind of our main, one of our main income earners, tourism, being taken away from us, or we're having to think quite carefully about, well, how's that going to work in the future? As we're doing all that again, and perhaps we have a new appreciation as to what really constitutes a key worker, mm -hmm. right? The people who are okay. stacking the shelves, the people yeah. who yeah. are in the supermarket. Mm -hmm. All of that is all happening at once. And we are busily trying to realign ourselves and figure out what our lives are going to be like. I think that's the challenge. And that's what might produce the sort of like yeah. the, the disturbance for people. Yeah. Do you think because it's highlighted like the the issues more you know the people the way that people are living you know mental health issues because i feel like it's risen you yeah. know and that i'm more aware of things you know um do you think that that we then have this opportunity to be more creative about the solutions and that we will act on it because we kind of can't ignore it yeah you know where i feel like often we just ignore things you know it's just like oh yeah poverty's a thing down there mm -hmm. you know yeah I would like to think that there is an opportunity here for mm. us to really be very mindful and intentional about developing solutions for this. My fear is that it gets swamped underneath all the economy, 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 yeah. economy stuff that, that will be happening very, very soon. It's already happening now. It will really, really peak, reach peak. Yeah. And it'd be like, yeah, that's a nice to have. It's not the must have. Mm. Whereas I would say they have to go in parallel. You can't have one without the other. It's a false dichotomy. Just as, you know, in the early days of the response, we were talking about it's not health or the economy, it's both. Yes. You have to have both. And mental health is just as much part of a wider thinking about what health is, right? Mm -hmm. and, but I, I agree with mm -hmm. you. You know, it really has thrown a light upon it. We're all more aware of it. You know, I put some videos out on the idea and some blogs out on the idea of FOGO at the moment. Mm. This idea of kind of like it's not FOMO, fear of missing out. It's the fear of going out. And it's the anxiety yeah. of actually, well, hang on a second, I was in this safe space at home, and now I'm putting myself into this other space which I was comfortable going into before, and now I'm thinking twice about it, thinking three times about mm. it. It's a different relationship that we now have with outside of our homes, which mm. speaks to what it is that you were, were talking about. You know, mm. The opportunity is that if we're thinking about how AR and VR might be able to assist, it enables people to test things out in a safe way, right? Mm. And have a good experience and then perhaps move over to the next step mm -hmm. and, and keep doing that, but doing other things as well. So I think we may have a much more mixed experience yeah. in the future, a mixed way of interacting with people, which is a good thing. Yeah. yeah. You brought up the idea of being creative mm. to find solutions. The challenge with that is that, and we had a discussion before about we need to feel and have our needs met psychologically first before we move into a creative yeah. space, right? We need to feel calm yeah. and happy and content and all these other things. So if we are feeling the result of this COVID crisis or any other issues on our lives, whether mm. it's related to that or not, the problem is that we don't 
actually Absolutely. have a space to feel creative. And I don't know if you felt that during the time that we've been off. It's been a bit of a sludge mm. rather than a, an awakening because we now yeah. have time. It's mm. been actually kind of, it's hard to be creative when you're yeah. in a space that you don't know what's going to happen in a couple of weeks' time because you're always looking at the news yeah. and things. Yeah, it's, it's in some ways, like it's half and half for me. In some ways, you know, um, when, you know, if money isn't, for me personally, if money is an issue, then it's a lot harder for me to be creative because I'm worrying about, you know, paying staff and cash flow and all of those kind of things, you know, and that really stifles my creativity. But interestingly, during COVID, when we kind of got through, and I know you, there was a lot of phases and you did quite a lot of work on those, you know, talking about those different phases that we went through in, in COVID, there was a certain point where... I guess I just came to peace with what was happening, which was basically our whole business falling over and all our customers were closing and, you know, revenue had gone from 100% to 0%, you mm. know, within two days. Um, and, and then there's that grieving process of it that I went through. And then it actually allowed me space to be creative again. And I guess that's when Plan B you know, we was ready and I was ready to start thinking about it. Like, okay, well, what can we do? And what's the solution here? Um, even though we were in the midst of a crisis mm. Mm. and have them come out the other side, which is, you know, we were able to, you know, get some more funding to get new partners on board, you know, um, some new team members and, and have felt more creative and more inspired than I was for the last year. Mm. Because there was always some pressure or there was always some of these things that weren't being met that was making it harder to be that creative. So almost you got freed up yeah. due to the constraints. Yeah. Brought. And well, there's that classic constraints liberate your imagination, yeah. you know. Uh, Jorgen Leith, I think, said as a designer, which is lovely and juicy, right? Yeah. But it is right to well, a certain degree. you're at home. Yeah. There's time and space. And, and you are talking to people a lot more. Some children. And once you get over the conversation of, of COVID, you then do move into, so what, you know, kind of what are you spending your time on? Mm. In a sense, this is kind of a reaction yeah. to that as well, to create a space and create stuff to get out of the malaise mm. that I was feeling mm. around. Did you come up with this during yeah. your Essentially, it's yeah. an iteration of a, another uh, idea that was bouncing around for a couple of years and I went to institutions and asked them to get involved around courageous conversations in the city, specifically Wellington. Mm. And then I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who, and I mentioned things on my like list of things to do. And when I mentioned creative welly, because he's a Brit, he picked up on the welly side mm -hmm. and thought, oh, I like that name, like creative oomph, creative effort. Because in the UK, if you give something some welly, you give it effort oh, and oomph. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Right, yeah. So I love it. Some welly. Yeah. Give it some welly. I, I loved that someone interpreted interpreted it differently than welly being a shorthand yeah. of Wellington, right? Yeah. Which we know yeah. it as. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, creative oomph, creative welly. Well, what does that look like in the creative conversations or courageous conversations? And then I was just like, okay, why don't we just throw people together? But I want to do it differently. I want to do a bit long form. I want to make it look nice. Hence why Jono's here, to make it look pretty. Yay, Jono. Yay. <laughs> um, and, and try to just bring people. And I love the idea of intersections. I've always have, you know, from when I was doing the digital stuff, right through to some of the conferences that you've all been involved with, the idea of bringing people mm. differently together. And the TEDx stuff is all about intersections. Mm. So, yeah, who do I know? Do a big list. Who do I know that is lovely, doing great things, good humans, and let's intersect them together? Mm. So, you're right, this came out of COVID in that regards. Mm. But the constraints of, like, what can I do? Um, 
And one day I'll share what the original plan technically for this was. <laughs> and I look at Jono just because he's laughing at me because I remember pitching it to him and he was like, ah, shit, man. <laughs> he didn't say that. He was like, you could. Honest feedback. He was honest so feedback. nice. He was like, you could do it that way. Yeah. <laughs> However. Nice <laughs> like, Diplomatic or what, right? That's, that's the way we want. Um, mm. But I want to touch on like uh, a bit of both of your histories now because I, I, the reason why you're here around this table as well is because I admire both of you for very similar and different reasons. The similar reasons being you've both transitioned into completely different areas in your life, but have taken your experience and, and gumption with you in the nicest possible way. I'm not going to say hustle because I don't like that word. You know, but your gumption, uh, your heart, uh, what we say in Wales, hoil, you know, a bit Oil. of heart and hoil is lovely. Um, but you've also got very different backgrounds as well. So, Jessica, you started in a very different space than the one when we first met. Mm. So we met in Biz Dojo, mm. which was the largest ever co-working space in New Zealand. Still have it. You know? <laughs> uh, and you were my boss. I was. And you were my favorite. And you're my favorite ever boss. Aww, Seriously. <laughs> and I want to touch on that. So to talk about Star now first, and then I'll, I'll tell you why I admire you as a boss. Aww, I make you blush. <laughs> Star Now, well, I mean, the the reason I got the job at Star Now was interesting, and that was because I was actually traveling the world. I had this job as a dog sitter in Scotland for a guy who was a bodyguard in Iraq. So that's just, as you do. So that was my OE. (laughs) So I was over there, and then I had a friend say, let's go to Prague for a holiday. I'm like, yes, this is why I'm here, to travel. How old are you at this point? Just on my I'm, brain. I must be early 20s. Gotcha. Yeah. And so she said, but I know some Kiwis in, in Prague. They have a house. We can stay with them. Perfect. So we turn up and it's these three guys, Nigel, Jamie and Cameron. And they are three Wellington guys who happen to be running a company called Star Now out of their lounge in Prague. No way. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually knew Nigel I had been to some parties at his flat down the road and like... Wellington's so like that, eh? Yeah, in Bowman Street. So you knew the guy, but he was in Prague running a company. Yeah, and I was like... I walk in the door and he's like, hey, I know you, I know you, this is weird. (laughs) Anyway, they were solving a problem, which was a problem that I understood, which was that it was hard for actors, models, musicians, talent to get auditions and jobs. Because traditionally you have to have an agent or have studied. And if you're just someone that were like, I want to be an extra and, I don't know, like, home and away, that's a hard thing to suddenly realise, you know. It's not that easy just to suddenly do that. So they'd created a platform where anyone could put their profile on it and then gather the jobs and you could apply. It's basically trade me type. Yeah. You know, they'd all work to trade me together. So, you know, it's kind of like oh, a matchmaking job website, but gotcha. specifically for that industry. And I had studied film and theatre, and so I had come from that background, and I understood, having tried to do, you know, some acting myself, that that was a tricky way to get a jobs. So anyway, I was like, this is so cool. And they're like, well, if you're over in New Zealand and we're back in New Zealand, you can have a job. And, you know, fast forward a few years later, <laughs> they were back here, just down the road, had an gotcha. office um, in, in the, that corner building down off Cuba. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm here, can I have a job? <laughs> and I'm like, sure. Uh, fast forward eight years with them. Um, my, my, my second or my last role there was um, chief customer officer. So managing a couple of teams, both kind of customer success and um, marketing and also kind of market 
or the markets that we were in, which was the UK and Australia, um, a little bit in New Zealand, a little bit in the US, and and the jobs that came in there and all the productions and making sure. But it scaled at that stage, right? It had scaled, it had really yeah, yeah. It had gone. Cool. Like, I mean, it's a great company. They're still doing mm-hmm. really well. Um, yeah, there were just I don't know, maybe six of us, and there were thirty odd or thirty five when I left. Mm. Um, but they didn't really want to keep it. They they wanted to keep it at about that number. That's a nice number for a company, you know. And yeah. but you know they weren't really very well known in New Zealand because mm. all of their customers were mostly offshore. Mm. Um, so I spent a lot of time in the states, a lot of time in the UK, um, working for them, um, and it was a great job, and I loved it, and I loved because it brought it was arts and drama and theatre and entertainment industry, which I still enjoyed, but it was all about a website and technology solving a problem. And I just love learning all about that. And they were very data-driven analytics guys. You know, they're super smart and everything was about numbers. Yeah. And so that gave me this whole learning because I hadn't come from that background. I'd come from, you know, this kind of creative background. And so it kind of merged those together. And what it really ignited was a, a passion in a weightless technology and the ability for Kiwis to solve problems here with markets offshore and, you know, be, be creating really great jobs for people and really great cultures. And I thought, surely there's other companies that could be doing this, which led me to BizDojo, mm. to take on the regional manager role there because they were working with the council, yeah, had a, a new... Good little fit. Yeah. And a microcosm of all the things you just described mm. because you were kind of then not just overseeing the start of that community because you were overseeing the growth of that community. Yeah, yeah. Right? So come into BizDojo, yeah. grow it. You know, double it in size was was what they wanted me to do, mm. both the physical space and the number of residents, and then set up the Collider program, which was when I made the first best hire I ever did, which was DK, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who then came up with all of the stuff <laughs> and made it all happen. <laughs> well, what was mad is when I started, I think there was about 80 to 90 members in BizDojo or residents, yeah, right? Residents, yeah. And then when I left, which was like 14, 15 months later, they were like over 200. Mm-hmm. And you arrived before me. So you were there, I think, about six, four months, four to six months yeah. before me. So you there was only like 50 odd, mm, right? It was about 50 odd when I started, Members. yeah. And then when you left, which you only left about, again, four months before me, mm. um, yeah, there was like two. You, we broke the 200, I remember, yeah. before you left because yeah. that was your big threshold number. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I can see all your guidance to do that but the reason I, I bring that up is in terms of like your leadership I remember the early conversations we had um, and one of the, the the most compelling things that I share with other people as an example of good leadership which is when Jessica early on said how do you want me to manage you I, I have to say I've known DK for a long time I remember this conversation oh, I remember him telling me on the phone because you under mm. about the job I remember mm. when you were, when you were offered it at the time mm. But I remember how reassured and how amazed you felt because you told me that. And I was like, hey, that's a really good sign. That's a really, really oh, great time. You remember, I remember that? Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. yeah, it really stuck in my brain yeah. going, okay, yeah. Because I've run businesses before yeah. that. So I didn't want to be an very employee. Yeah. I was. I was yeah. doing my own kind of silly yeah. things. So, yeah, to be an employee again and have a manager was like a little bit, mm. it was definitely ego. It got in the way a little bit. But then, like you say, I had that conversation mm. and I remember chatting to Saab because I was in two minds. And we did do fun stuff. We did. We had yeah. lots of fun. We had a great totally. team there. Best Loved team our ever. Team. And we nailed it. Because we had such a great team, 
we hit all those targets. We created a really wonderful community. Yeah. You know, it was just, it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was interesting because I felt like a beginning of something that now has catapulted here in the city, in Wellington mm. specifically, around startup communities and mm. uh, the incubators and all the, the events that wrap around it. Even though there had been stuff before, definitely, mm. it did feel like that was an accelerated yeah. pace that we were throwing into the mix there. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, doing 200 events in the first year of Collider was stupid. Yeah. Don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> but it was fascinating, right? There's yeah. a test as an example of, okay, you can do it, and this is why you shouldn't do it as well <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. when you learn from it. Um, yeah. But it was, it was definitely fun. But the leadership thing, I really enjoyed experiencing your leadership Thank and you. in terms of how you approached just igniting us and going, go on in, mm. go on in. <laughs> Put it in the nicest possible way, but it was very much, go on in, you know what yeah. to do. Yeah. Well, that's mm-hmm. it, right? It's like, mm. you know, hire people who are smarter than you, right? Mm-hmm. And then give them the tools that they need to deliver what is on, you know, let them know what they need to deliver and the tools to deliver and then trust, right? It's like, trust, you knew what we needed to achieve. We all knew what the goals were. So, like, go do it whatever way you want to do it, I think. People really need that freedom and ownership when they're doing something because otherwise they're just miserable, you know, and we've all had those jobs where someone's just... Well, let's be honest, it turned into those jobs well, as well, you know, yes. it kind of, that's why we both left. That's the, we left. The leadership <laughs> kind of didn't fit us as well and, yeah. and we both left learning a lot yeah. from each other. Uh, and I'm thinking about then bringing you in from a perspective of the leadership angle because I know you've worked a lot from a psychological perspective in leadership spaces. Um, and that creation of space of safety, of trust mm-hmm. that you did, kind of seems like the the conversation we're having with creative leadership and when we get into our TEDx Wellington things, we kind of, we straight away see good leaders because they embody certain psychological traits. Would mm-hmm. you kind of agree with that? I know you've done some work with Julia as well around all this. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, work I've done with Julie um, and I guess it's probably, there's a mapping on the traits of that, that leaders have, you know, the charismatic, you know, the, the openness, the conscientiousness, all these sorts of different things that leaders show. But it's also about what they create inter, in interaction with their staff, with their teams. And I think all of that is around a process of building a space of psychological safety. Okay, so that's number one, for, for people to be able to flourish and to be, for people to be able to flex their skills and to demonstrate and to do the work that they feel passionate about. To have the safety to be able to do that is quite a skill to be able to set that up, but also to create that learning environment as well where it feels okay to fail, you know, and you're not going to get hung out to dry. And this is you, this is your fault, you made this happen and now you're going to pay the consequences. Rather, people see that as an opportunity to learn, understand, like you said beforehand, like you said, yeah, you could do 200 events, but like uh, there are some things that may <laughs> indicate why this is not a good idea, mm-hmm. but you learned that as you went along, right? Yeah. You created a space where that was okay for, for that to happen, right? Because it was go and do it. I, I trust you and I trust that you will bring the learning back as well because you are reflective enough and you are open enough in the relationship that you had with your leadership around this is an okay thing to talk about. Right. So, and I think that that's the danger, right? You were talking earlier on about um, this process that you went through, through COVID, of this kind of like you see your revenue go from 100 to zero in two days. And that's a threat, okay? And all of your threat stuff kind of like is awakened, 
you know, all that fight, flight stuff, and what am I going to do? And it paralyzes your thinking. It puts blinkers on your thinking such that you can see nothing else apart from this threat that's in front of you. But then what you described is this kind of grieving process, this realization of actually, okay, this is the reality. There's possibly some kind of acceptance going on there. There's anger that comes along with that. There's frustration that comes along with that. There's all sorts of things that come along with people's grief experience. You know, there is this kind of like, you know, there's the Kubler-Ross five stages of grief. Yes, to a certain extent, but it shows itself in so many different ways in people's lives. But then I think what you also talked about was this idea, and I think this is partly leadership as well, around creating a space where people can calm, can calm themselves, because that psychological safety then opens up your strategic and creative parts of your brain, which are not available to you when you're under threat and you're thinking that somebody's watching me the whole time and I'm having to watch what I'm doing and I can't really feel like I'm flexing my full capability, my full me in this space. You can't use that strategic brain. You can't use that creative brain. And I think that that then leads to you starting to think about, well, what drives me? What motivates me? And I read about you, and I found this fascinating, is you were saying that your why doesn't have to stay the same mm-hmm. throughout your whole life, right, throughout your whole career. And it resonated with me because I remember going to a talk and people were saying, there's one particular person who I'm not allowed to name, <laughs> was, say, was saying, don't be afraid of the random walk career. Because often we make sense of where it is that we've been in the retrospective. And by saying that this is what I want to do in the future, you limit yourself so much because you're so blinkered upon reaching this goal that you, you, you pass on the opportunities that that may present themselves. Because you're so focused upon the why that you're in now and projecting that why into the future. Staying on that single path. Absolutely. That's my why. And in five years, 10 years, 20 years time, my why is going to take me here. Whereas actually I think being available to the opportunities and be available to yourself and saying, my why might change Mm. and being in touch with your why, then I think might take you on a different path. And that's where I think, you know, often people think that, you know, you need a GPS to navigate yourself in the modern world. Whereas actually we're, we're entering now into a world where we have no idea as to what the terrain is going to look like. The GPS map that we have downloaded no longer works. Mm-hmm. You know, it's going beep, 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 this is dead end, beep, beep, beep. Oh, but it looks like it's a through road on my GPS. It's mm-hmm. not. So we have to go back to our compass. We actually have to go back to the values that navigate us. And leadership puts you back in touch with not only your own compass, but whether your compass is a good fit for this organization that you're working with. And both of you recognize that they came to a point where actually it didn't fit mm. so much anymore. See, I'm, I was yeah, really interested in hearing well, about that. Well, I always admire people who quit. Yeah. <laughs> From a perspective, not in a quit or you quit, yeah. but moved on to something different or said no to something that wasn't working. Mm. And then that born out of something I would say, which is like no is a powerful yes to mm. something else, right? So when you say no to something, it's actually not quitting that. It's actually saying yes to something else. You want something better. You want to explore something, which we've done, but Mm. you've done in the VR space as Mm. well recently. And it kind of taps into your leadership space and creating that space for yourself to become your own leader as well. I love that why thing. I never heard that from you, so Mm. that's lovely to hear. But I love hearing you talk because you always throw in psychological things and I always smile when you go, yeah, there's five stages of grief. Just like it's a hot learning thing, the geek, the nerd that you are, in the nicest possible way. But I'm interested in, in like your why 
because you've been a psychologist for a long time. Yes, yes, I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean to burn age on it. I'm not going down that road, but I'm just saying it's like. But you've done different things with that psychology in terms of disaster, emergency recovery stuff. Yeah, um, the clinical psychology, the child psychology stuff. But then also in the UK, you were working with the Ministry of Health in the UK, even though you've done it here in New Zealand as well. But going back to the UK, yeah. one of my favorite things about you is you wrote the pandemic for the UK's response, the pandemic response for the UK. Mm-hmm. Is that the right way to say it? You didn't write the pandemic, I hope. <laughs> no, exactly, that's what I'm trying to say. I didn't write the team part of it. So I'm interested in kind of that experience and now how you reflect on this experience you've just gone through. Yeah. Okay, so maybe take it back a step okay. um, so I can make a little bit of sense of this. Because, yeah, I yeah, have give had us a the very, context. I have had a very, very uh, fluid, varied career mm-hmm. in psychology. So if you go back to 1988, um, I had had... Um, uh, a lot of arguments with my mum and dad around not wanting to be a medical doctor because I was squeamish, but they were first-generation immigrants into a country which valued professions. Right, and, yeah. you know, mm. traditionally, Asian families from the Punjab valued their children going into professions because it was dependable income mm-hmm. and it was social status, right? So all of that stuff plays in here. You know, my mum and dad were children in big families in, countries with a, in, country, in a country with high mortality rates, so my dad lost three of his siblings during their childhood. My mum lost one uh, of her sisters. Uh, they moved through the whole of the um, partition of India. So they had big experiences of forced migration mm. and witnessing some horrible stuff. And so when they chose to migrate to the UK, they wanted the best uh, for Were you around at that time? Or um, you were to come in the UK? Sorry? You were to arrive when you were in the UK. In other words, they had you when you were in the UK. No, so they moved to the UK in the 60s. And then I was born in in the late 60s, 69. So that ages me. Uh, Yeah, finally it's out. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, so, you know, I had better... So I ended up doing a business economics and accounting degree, which I hated. And I spent three months basically holed up in my room, hating what I was doing, but reading a lot about psychology, because that was my kind of like minor subject at the time. So I decided, actually, I was going to drop out of university. So I dropped out, started again the next year, and reading psychology at um, a place called Hull in the north of England. Loved it. Really, really enjoyed it. Did some work as a kind of like a research assistant during that time as well. And then fast forward through going through doing my PhD in Cardiff, which is great, fantastic. Love that, love that city. It's a very, very special place in my heart with Cardiff. And then um, going on and doing various research jobs and then going to do my clinical training in London. And then I came here two years after working as a child clinical psychologist in Islington in London, which is kind of like TV producer land, but also some of the poorest, uh, poorest areas in the whole of the uh, in the whole of Europe. I was going to say the EU, but the Brent is not part of the oh, EU anymore, so I say Europe now. Um, so, yeah, it's... Um, yeah, I see you shaking your head. Me too, but Sorry, let's not go there. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, um, it's been a very, very interesting journey, even just up until that point. And then I moved here in 2005. In 2006, I started working for the Ministry of Health here, working in emergency management, thinking about... What do we do in this particular point in time? It was the H5N1 bird flu pandemic that we were thinking about, uh, avian influenza. And then I had the opportunity. I wasn't sure about my future in New Zealand, to be honest, at that point. I was really kind of like not sure. It was kind of working well. 
When I first came here in 2005, I left and I went back home for after eight months. I was terribly homesick, really, really, really badly homesick. And then I realized it was because I was putting so much pressure on myself for it to work and for it to succeed within a year. For some reason, I set myself this deadline that it had to work within a year. And once I kind of talked that through with my parents and talked it through with my friends back, at, back in the UK, which is something I kind of miss, you know, those sort of like friends that you've had since childhood. And I realized actually this was really daft. Like what, I, what was I putting this pressure on myself for? So I allowed myself to fail. I allowed myself the possibility that actually this isn't going to work out. And as soon as I did that, it started working mm. for me here. And I left New Plymouth, which I loved, but it was just kind of a bit small from a boy who grew up in London to move from a city of seven, eight million, uh, seven, eight million to a city of 50,000 people. I thought, right, okay, I probably need to go somewhere a little bit bigger, move to Wellington, and things started working out for me. Yet I still felt a little bit kind of umming and So I actually qualified, um, went through the whole thing about applying for the JET program, the teaching Japanese, uh, in, oh, uh, teaching English yeah. in Japan yeah. uh, to, to school kids. And I kind of like was set up to go on that. But then I also went through the, all the assessment programs for the UK civil service, which was like a really big deal. It was harder to get into the medical school mm -hmm. at that point in time. Uh, and I got in. And then I was like, right, okay. I deferred it for a year because I didn't want to make the decision. So I deferred it as long as I possibly could. And then they said, no, you need to come if you're going to come. So I did. And I went into the UK uh, and then they figured out they were just having the election. It was 2010 and it was a coalition government. And I got a tap on the shoulder and they said, oh, you've worked in a coalition government before, haven't you? And I'm like, I was an official <laughs> in the New Zealand government. They're like, right, fine. You can be a private secretary to, to, the, to the minister. Now that's very, very kind of cool because private secretaries are not, you know, they're, they're officials in a sense. You know, they're a public sector worker with a bit of authority within the ear of the minister, right? Yeah. So you're working directly with the minister. I was a neutral civil service private secretary because you have kind of political private secretaries as right. well. Um, but yeah, suddenly you're kind of like, you know, at, talking to directors saying, you know, we need this information from you by the end of the day. Um, minister would like to have a conversation with you, you know, first thing tomorrow morning. And they would just have to do it. And it was just very, very strange because, mm -hmm. you know, you're just kind of like this, actually a really quite low-ranking person. And suddenly you've got this sort of power and authority. But we're, we were having children at the time uh, and I was spending, you know, 11, 12 o'clock at night uh, in Parliament, sort of like staffing debates and things like that. And so this is how I ended up with the pandemic influenza strategy job because they actually allowed me to work from home most of the time. Controversial at that time. Controversial at that time. It was pretty, pretty good that they allowed me to do that um, as a new dad. And I had to fight hard for that and say, look, you know, I've done kind of like the late hour stuff. Can I please be at home? I promise you I'm, I will be more effective because I'll be spending, you know, way more time not commuting and stuff like that, which is going to be difficult. And so, yes, so I was the lead writer of the pandemic influenza strategy. Now I say, and I'm very clear about it, it's influenza, which is very different of course, in yeah. terms of its behavior to what we're experiencing right now. But it was very interesting to try and pull that together, mm. working in uh, unison with uh, science colleagues who actually wrote a parallel document, which was the science underpinning all of the things that we were developing mm. for the policy. Mm. And I think it was a really, really good model having the scientists sure. and the policy people working in tandem, working on two different documents, but that spoke to each other. 
That's well, quite often that doesn't happen, right? The policy mm. doesn't match with the science and science. Doesn't. So to, to get that to work, is, is that kind of through relationship building or was that kind of uh, you were a scientist yourself or you came from a scientific, psychological, clinical background, you could bring that to it? There was part of that, which yeah. is why I think I was kind of shoulder tapped for that job, which is the way it works in the, in the civil service. They kind of look at your skills background. They say, okay, you might be a good fit. Mm -hmm. But I also worked very closely with a person who had been in that team who had a much more thorough basic science background. And he was connected in very well with the rest of the team too. Um, and I had a very, very good boss mm -hmm. who sounded a little bit like you uh, in that she basically was like, my job is to shield you from everybody else who's gonna try and tell you what to do. Because I trust what it is that you think that needs to happen here. I've known you long enough, which was only about a month at that time. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah, and so she said, that's my job. Please don't let me down. Please make sure you communicate with me once a week and tell me what's going well and what's not going well, just so that I can help. This is, this is, not, this is a relationship where I'm trying to facilitate what it is that you're doing. And we did it in 11 months. Mm from start to finish. And it's one of the pieces of work that I'm probably most proud of in terms of we managed also to get Scotland on board because we were talking about the four nations at that point. And it's interesting, you know, it was a kind of like, a, you know, I'd been in New Zealand for a few years and then I was back in the UK and I turned up to my first meeting and they said, oh, we'll have to have a, you know, make sure that all four nations are on board with that. And I'm looking at the blankly like going, which four nations? Yeah. <laughs> They're like, England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. I'm like, is that how we're doing this now? Oh, interesting, right. Wow, okay. So, yeah, the world the changes. Of yeah, all those powers. All those powers, right? yeah. but, and the Health world changes, right? Yeah. And the world changes, which means that your relationships change and how you do and how you navigate the world. My compass was blown apart. Mm. I thought, what do I do here? How do I navigate this? And then really having to talk with people and say, what's going on here? How does this relationship work? What's the historical background here? Please give me some context and please be with me in these mm. first two or three meetings where I make sure I don't you know, really put my foot in it with these relationships. So yeah, so it's, um, it, was a, it was a job where I brought my psychological presence and knowledge more to my way of working rather than the content. Gotcha. Yeah? Yep. And so I guess that that's where my psychology background helped. Yeah. And then two years later, I came back to New Zealand as a result of the Canterbury earthquake sequence beginning and spending a lot of time at the dining table in London, talking to Radio New Zealand, talking to ministers, talking to officials about what, what was going on or what could happen next. And at that point, you became an associate professor for Massey, right? That's right. So the, the way that it was kind of like set up was that um, government were giving money to um, creating projects and then I was being paid out of that project money uh, but I would be sitting in Matsu University because for me it was really really important for me to remain independent yeah. and to be able to give free and frank advice and tell people stuff that they didn't necessarily want to hear. And it was a research piece wasn't it? kind of layman's terms it was a, a big research piece of work. That, that was part were... of it oh, and part, part of it right. was advisory part of it was oh, okay. okay so this is my understanding of what the research is telling us globally and this is how it works in a New Zealand environment so my work was really one of those people as a trans uh, translator uh, of the science and of the research uh, in policy terms because I'd worked in uh, as a clinic at this stage I'd worked as a clinician I'd worked as a researcher and I'd worked in policy working with ministers so I kind of I understood the vertical chain and so being able to kind of navigate up and down that vertical chain was what set me apart 
from, from other people, I think. Fascinating. Just, I know. It's just all those weaves and turns and then suddenly find yeah. yourself. Now, what's fun is I met Saab at a random event on Cuba Street in San Francisco. <laughs> he came up and chatted to me. I spoke at some social media it thing. It was, yeah, it was. And you started chatting to me and you were like, hey, you Welsh and I'm English and we were just chatting away and got to know each other. And from there, like a friendship just kind of blossomed, right? But this was like in 2012. Yes. Right? Yeah. And, but I associate TEDx with you two. That's how I... That's right, yeah. And I, well, that was the thing. I would, I'd already started TEDx Tiaro then and yeah. did a couple of those events. But when it came to doing a proper grown-up TEDx Wellington, mm-hmm. like a city thing, I was like, I'm not bloody MCN <laughs> again. Because um, it's just, just hard. Just another pressure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know what it's like, it. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was like, who do I know that holds themselves very well and can navigate that world of introducing someone, understanding people, relationships mm-hmm. and everything, expectations. And it was just like, and I remember asking you and you were like, yeah, you you were kind of you were hesitant to say yes. You were excited by it, but you were also confused by it because it was your first MC gig, right? It was. I know, but I'll tell you. I'll tell you the story, right? I, on that night where I met you at the social media thing in Cuba Street, I said to you, "Oh, I went to TEDx Tiara, and that was really really cool. Let me know if I can help out next time around." <laughs> Thinking I would be like you know a runner or someone who would be like helping out backstage or something like that. And so when you came back to me and said, "Oh, you know, I've got the perfect thing for you. I'd like you to MC." I was like, you what? You know, you know I've never emceed anything before that in my life. It, yeah. <laughs> but I was like, no, I think you'd be good at it. Just through the basic kind of, he's a psychologist, kind of knows it. Very good at it. But it was so important to have someone who could yeah. also calm the speakers. Yes. And that was the key thing. It was a bit of a rope for me as well to pull you in, um, uh, to use you in other ways and to use your psychology. Because you got involved in then coaching the speakers yes. in some way uh, and in several times and iterations that we've done it. And I've learned so much from just stealing your ideas when I now coach other people. Uh, you're, you're, you know, you're breathing, resting, breathing red which you, you did at one of the first sessions. So we got a resting heart rate, right? Mm-hmm. Which we know kind of from, the, but we've also got a resting breathing rate. Mm-hmm. So if you can figure that out yourself, which is quite easy, just count how many times you breathe. But then if you feel at any time anxious mm-hmm. or worried about things, is get yourself to breathe at that rate because mm-hmm. you're probably breathing off. It resets your parasympathetic Pathetic system. Parasympathetic nervous system. Nice. Yeah, yeah. See, it's good, it? But I loved all that stuff. And I was just like, wow, this is Jedi mind trick stuff going on. <laughs> but it so, so works. And, and that was what I was intrigued by is kind of not your MC skills, but also you helped all the other speakers to do that and use your clinical skills to help people from a psychological perspective do it. So, yeah. It's so important. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating the psychology behind yeah. getting up on a TEDx Wellington stage. So you, you have fun we, doing it, don't you? Do you? I do. I have enormous fun doing it. I, I missed it, to be honest. Yeah, uh, we, haven't we haven't done, done it for a, while, for a little yeah. while. I have missed it. Um, I've had other opportunities to, to MC, but there's nothing quite like what you put together for, for TEDx. Mm. And I think that that's something very special that you do. And, and I do remember thinking about that Doing that with 400 people on the first one that I did, do you remember? And I remember thinking, just in terms of the transition, because it was somebody who was like really, really funny and got got the audience in a kind of like a really kind of like happy state. And I remember thinking the next person on has got actually quite a very different story to tell, which may actually make people feel quite sad. And I didn't want that person to come on stage with this 
audience that had been primed for mm. laughing and mm. was just coming off a really, really big high. Mm. So we did that kind of like reset of, of did, breathing yeah. rate for 60 seconds just to put people in a little bit of a different psychological, physical state than being kind of like, ha, 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 and this person comes on stage going, I really don't have a ha, ha story to <laughs> yeah. tell you right now. It's <laughs> kind of tragic. Yeah. But you've, you've used that in so many other ways now, and I've learned from that, and you've attended some of our events as well, and seen Saab kind of massage the mm. audience into a, a psychological or emotive state mm. to receive the next speaker. I think so many events don't do that. They just quickly introduce, right. get the next mm. person on, rather than thinking about how is this person to be received, mm-hmm. uh, or what is the situation that I can set up for this person to best be received, mm-hmm. sorry. Mm. And that's what I really kind of love about what you do. But what What's fun now is like I got you into the MC role and and then you got some other gigs from it and now you're an MC, which is cool. So (laughs) thank you for that. Uh, Got a little ten percent off every track, right? Because I pay so well. (laughs) I know, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, I was going to say something rude there, Uh, so I just stopped myself. But I love the fact in the last couple of years, though, you've totally transitioned again and now started doing video stuff. Yes, yes, I have. Um, so you're doing lots of videos on YouTube now. Um, so partly that was around, uh, it's interesting because we were, I was using um, a 360 degree camera, which was the first thing that kind of like, I was kind of making videos, didn't really know what I was doing, to be honest. I hadn't really found my thing. And then I started using this one particular 360 camera, the Insta360 One X, there, I've said it. Uh, and it was just amazing, the, 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 the interface that it had. And it just, I had so much fun. Mm. It didn't feel like work. Mm. I was like, this is an amazing tool. And it was partly it was the immersive stuff, but partly it was the ability just to kind of like have a camera and then just be able to film everything all at the same time and then choose my point of view afterwards. Mm. And for me, it was like, okay, this is something I feel like I can talk about. And so that was kind of like a learning experience of like, oh, how do you make a video? And what's the story about mm. telling a video? And then COVID-19 kind of like came along and I thought, okay, so if my passion is public mental health and I care a lot about the two things that kind of like guide my psychological work are two principles. And I remember talking to my wife on the eve of going through level four and I said, look, I'm going to start making these videos one every day for around personal well-being throughout the whole of level four. And I said to my wife, Sarah, who's amazing, and I said, structure and empathy. They're the two things I want to be talking about. If I deviate from structure and empathy, please be my accountability and tell me that you're moving and you're straying away because I might lose my compass. I might lose my radar in the middle of this. I don't know where I'm going to, where this is going to take me because I'm going to, I was talking to Jono earlier on and I was saying, I wanted to stay live and I didn't want to pre-record a whole load of stuff that then was out of step of what people were experiencing. Mm. So I wanted to almost do them like at most one day ahead of myself or do them on the day and then release them later on that night. But structure and empathy was the thing I wanted to, to do. So again, it's like trying to bring my psychology knowledge and personhood and really occupy that when I'm doing the videos as well in an authentic way, which is still me, which is hard, right? Because kind of your mind is going blah, 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 like all these different things that I, so I have to write it out. And then kind of like I'll have my ideas kind of like really, really structured and use that structure for myself but then also be applying that empathy to myself as well. Because, you know, you sit there and you look at the figures and you go, well, that was shit. Like, nobody liked that one. Yeah. And this one seems to have taken off. I have no idea why. And then I, you know, I got an invitation last night from the Medical Laboratory Scientists Association of New Zealand who want me to come and speak 
in September. And I'm like, this is amazing. And she said, I watch your YouTube videos. Yeah. And I'm like, I have no idea who my audience is. Yeah. You know, it, was a, it, was a, it was a real like, awakening Fascinated. moment last night. I, like, yeah. I literally have no idea who my audience is yeah. for these But videos. I was sure of my, you know, I, I thought you were being silly when you, in the nicest possible way, when you announced you were going to do one a day at level four, only because I thought, we don't know how long we're going to be in level four, and <laughs> yeah. something's good, you know, I thought, okay, you committed, that's cool, but you've done a bunch of videos before then, I know it, it, you weren't just like did two or three videos, you had a bank of videos, but then you just transitioned into that space, and it's been just like amazing to watch people kind of engage, I share them with people back home and all other things, especially specific topics, Yeah, mm. and I know people, it's like, yeah, that I'm going to share that mm. with whomever because they need that at this and point. I'd see them because you would be sharing them on Twitter. Right, okay. So that was how I yeah. saw your videos. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's amazing you yeah. get that feedback though and, and I'm sure anecdotally you got lots more stories Do you just say, yeah, i got a tweet, i got a thing from you and, mm. and that impact. But I love the fact that you've transitioned into that technology space and then mm. online video space. Did you know the camera he uses? Uh, no, I didn't it's know. It's a VR stuff. Yeah, and, yeah. I, well, I mean, right. I know that camera, but I didn't realize. Okay. But you weren't using that for your. Were you using that for? No, no I was just using my iPhone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like with the lighting and, and all the rest of it, but it actually does a really, really good job. And I thought, well, I could have a more complex setup, but why? No, you uh, don't I haven't got anything like we're using here today. But um, yeah, no, yeah. and it, it works. It works well for what it is that I want, want to do. But yeah, yeah. Uh, it's bold. Audacious, mm. but again, you've transitioned into that video space, and I know you've kind of, I know you've always been involved in media through interviews with the BBC and things like that, and you've done quite a bit here with, sorry, I forgot that comic's name with the fried chicken in the James shower. James Lucchese and eating fried chicken oh, in the shower. I love yeah, that. he's great, great, right? Yeah, um, and and stuff like that. So you've always been media savvy, but to turn the camera on yourself is a bit different. Yeah, yeah, and, and I guess. I'm glad I had the experience of being able to kind of occupy that space and get used to that. Uh, You're doing one a week now? Yes, one a week now on right. the psychology stuff. Um, so, yeah, uh, just continuing the theme of just trying to help people to understand, you know, how, how predictability and certainty is really, really important for people's sense of being able to stand on solid ground and how it feels like that solid ground doesn't feel so solid and mm. it's moving all the time yeah. and how just, just normalising people's experience and going, yeah, that's what's happening right now. So what, what is solid for you? Yeah. And, and helping people to understand how it is that they can use that as their rock to, to anchor themselves mm. or to start to developing, to, to develop those rocks upon which they can anchor themselves in these, in these turbulent times. Does seem a bit odd at the moment, doesn't it? Still. Yeah. Well, I mean, yesterday, have you done a video yet about the new cases? That no, it'll, come be, out? it'll come okay. out Friday morning. I'm okay. not recording it till tomorrow because, okay. I, again, I just want to kind of like, I don't know enough about how people are reacting to that mm. at the moment. I've seen the anger and yeah. people being like, ah, yeah. blah, blah, this shouldn't be happening. I just want to let that sit for a little, a little mm. while. Yeah, yeah. But I, yeah. I'll be interested to watch that one because yeah. I, I'm finding it fascinating, people's reactions. In terms of are you shocked oh, or yeah, surprised? The, or, or? No, yeah. I, I mean, I felt like we knew that we were going to have some more cases mm. coming. So, right. the, But so many people seem so shocked and so angry and right. so pointing fingers everywhere. And I just never think any of that's beneficial for us. So, But people, that's people's reactions. So mm. that's a normal thing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm just interested in, in what, what that looks like and... Again, see what the next few days play out like. Mm. 
It's the classic case as well where the medium doesn't help when you're on social media, people are a bit more vitriolic yes. and they will go for the juggler than if we were in person, they'd probably say, oh, I just don't agree with that. Yeah. Versus <laughs> that is wank, you know, yes. it's very different. Yeah. Uh, people's reaction online. So I take it with a pinch of salt uh, when people go off on one. But I'm amazed by what we've achieved as our team of five million, uh, which is a lovely phrase, but it is crucial to figure out that we did all kind of pay attention. We had our best interest at heart and the community engagement you get in New Zealand is quite special. It was kind of UK 30, 40 years ago in terms of its community engagement, although you've got a very different experience of the UK and me because where you were brought up and your background and things. But uh, yeah, we, how do you kind of see it from a perspective of you're a local, but you've also got a very global view in terms of what you do with your work and stuff like that. Like, how do you see kind of other people reacting to what we've done here? I mean, I think they're envious and I think I can understand that, you Mm -hmm. know, because we have managed to deal with this in in such an amazing way. Um, But I also think that because we are, particularly in the business world, we're, we all operate, most of us operate globally, you know. So my business is all in America. So my customers are still shut down. They're mm. struggling. There's still more redundancies. And, of course, right now with the Black Lives Matter um, movement happening over there, you know, there's just huge disruption and anger. And, you know, I just I feel I'm just feeling for all of those people. And in some ways it's like you don't want to be gloating. You don't want to be like, oh, look at us. We've done so yeah. well, you yeah. know. We're just a tiny little blip in 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 the world, um, and so yeah, it's it's kind of a difficult position I think to be in in some ways. You know, we don't. My husband is Scottish. His family are still in all in Scotland. They're all locked down. His sister's a nurse. You know, there's it's still for like for you guys. We're still all in a, in this pandemic mm-hmm. in this crisis, and just because we've managed to be able to reopen, you know, our, some of our you know, our businesses here and our lives, it's still impacting us, no matter who we are, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels like we're isolated, but to some degree, because we're so connected yeah. globally now and, and in, a, in terms of our kind of lineage as well, we're connected to other spaces and places. It, it does feel that we're still connected to the, the, the tragic stuff that is going on. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, to be in New Zealand is not just a simple, yeah, we're in New Zealand yeah. and we're good. Yeah. And you're right, I also feel that little bit of hesitation of shouting how good we are. Yeah. Because I know some people are really still not mm. in a good space mm. and struggling. Uh, friends in Chicago and um, my other friend in Arizona at the moment who's having a huge spike of cases. Yes. Yeah. Like, mm. just like, oh, are you okay? Stay yeah. away. Don't oh. lick anybody. You know, it's just like, be careful. And yeah. Such a tension that still is there for me. Absolutely. You know, I still haven't yeah. kind of figured it out how to deal yeah. with the tension, the underlying kind of mm. hum of it all. Yeah. And it's, and it's changing still. Mm. You know, and it's very clear, you know, what in our experience over the last 24 hours in, in New Zealand, it's like, yes, we probably expected it to happen, but now it is here again. So how is this being handled? But then there's all the other really big stuff going on around the world as well, right? And mm. this is an election year into key mm. places that are important to us, you know, the US and our relationships there. Here at home as well, mm. here in New Zealand, we have that going on too, which is going to throw a whole load of other stuff in there. And I was talking to John before and I talked about it before, which is why I really don't like the new normal phrasing that's kind of like going on. Yeah. Because the new normal kind of implies that this is it now. 
this mm. this is how we're going to yeah. come out travel. Static. This is static. That's it. Absolutely, we've, we've arrived. Yeah, we've arrived. This is it now. No, it's going to change again, yeah, and then it's going to change again after that. And even if it doesn't change for us, it's going to change for our relationship mm. partners, whoever they are in the world, right? So we don't exist in a bubble. We we only exist because we are in relation to others. We make sense of ourselves in relation to others, right? So. It doesn't make any sense for us to say this is going to be our new normal because other people are changing and their situations are changing, which means that our situation is going to change too. So do we need a new phrase like the new fluid? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just the space where we're constantly in flux. Maybe the new no flux. <laughs> flux is on. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I do also wanted to touch on in terms of your tech side of things and your partners um, and moving into that VR single console stuff. I still kind of was, um, I was kind of in, in, uh, inquisitive around the idea of, well, how does that work? Because you were built on a space, a physical space. So I was thinking about Magic Leap mm-hmm. recently because, bless them, a lot of mm-hmm. them had to be laid off, yeah. I understand, yeah. and yeah. team over in Miramar now I don't think exists anymore. Or if, uh, but um, they had a very similar thing where they had a locally, locally based game where they had to be physically somewhere and then they mapped it and stuff so when you turn your game into a vr and i can take it at home Mm. how does that work when you got to figure out the space Mm, you don't need to so when you're at home um mostly you just have a little guardian a little space that you play in within and the game just loads you know so you don't have to it's not like ar which is placing digital objects within your real environment and everyone needs to map that real environment Mm. the our game at home won't matter it'll be like any of the other games you buy on a store um that you just put it on and it's there and you're in the environment our location-based game is a bit different, like because that has to yeah. be mapped to a specific sized room. Doesn't matter where that room is, yeah. but it needs to be eight by ten. Mm. Yeah. Currently, I mean, we can adapt that, but eight meters by ten is the size of the map that you play within. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. I did have a follow-up question, but I can't remember it now. It was to do with. Uh, Oh, yeah, I love the fact you mentioned it earlier. This is New Zealand. This is like Wellington. When you were talking about your star now and in meeting people out in Prague and stuff, very Wellington stuff. <laughs> um, but I also thought it was very Wellington earlier on when you just dropped it. Yeah, Richard Taylor popped it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you mentioned someone else who turned out to be Brent, who runs, you know, Two Bit Circus, which is yeah. a big deal. Yeah, so and well, his dad is the founder of Atari. Yeah, it's and not Chuck a small Chief. thing, yeah. is it? You know, and Chuck E. Cheese. Atari and Chuck E. Yeah. Cheese. Yeah. <laughs> you want to slap him, or slap him right? Yeah, to be his friend, whatever. <laughs> but yeah, I met Brent randomly in uh, an event in Montana. Oh, right. Years ago. Yeah. Or was it um, the hatch the thing hatch that I go to? Yeah, 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 big shout out to the hatches. But yeah, think, yeah, how random is that when I started to see them appear in oh. the EHF stuff, the yeah. Edmund Hillary Fellowship? Mm-hmm. Just because it's quite attractive, you mm-hmm. know, a couple of years ago when they launched to come to New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do have a hesitation about how attractive we're becoming, though. Mm. In what way? Too so, attractive. Yeah, because <laughs> we're cold, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Physically, just look at us, man. Look, yeah, yeah. I meant uh, New Zealand, specifically in relation to some of the tech and uh, the people who have deep pockets. Yes. Um, I know there's been some reaction, both negative and positive, to the fact that we got the Avatar peeps. Mm. 
kind of arrived a week ago mm-hmm. and in isolation in one of our most prestigious hotels here in Wellington and booked out the whole thing and they got 200 people here and they're all doing their isolation and in one way you go cool we're bringing people back we're going to mm-hmm. ignite the economy but they're creative jobs as well we're going to give jobs to other people and we are well known for that type of thing mm-hmm. but we've also got that hesitation about okay is that just for the certain types of people mm-hmm. and Definitely, we're going to probably see a lot more people with deeper pockets mm-hmm. try to come here mm-hmm. for some reason, for some safety. And, and mm-hmm. obviously, we can't just say no to everybody, but mm-hmm. I'm fascinated about your reactions to that, especially mm-hmm. in the tech world, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, the creative film, TV, it's a huge part of who we are in our economy. And so this isn't a new thing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we've been making Avatar here for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Uh, I have the bias, I guess, in that I love that industry and I love the jobs that it creates for the people here because that has a flow-on effect for people like my business, you know. So many of my team come from having worked at Weta. So many of the people I've hired have been international. They've come because of Weta being here and that post-production work. And so being, you know, this digital creative hub is is something that I feel really strongly about and I think it's something that we do really well and it's something we can continue to kind of export is our creative IP and that we can be making more TV, film, games. I mean, right now we've got some leading game companies in the world. It's incredible the talent we have here. Mm. So I think though, you know, so for me, them coming here, you know, I think anyone here who's bringing business, you know, that's ethical and that we you know, meets the values of our country, should be able to come as long as they meet the requirements and they do what they need to do, quarantine, etc. I don't think, I know it's difficult because we go, well, what about these people? What about these people? But um, it's always been like that with immigration and with Mm -hmm. people, you know, coming to work somewhere. I don't know. I'm personally for it. Um, If they're not coming to mine and do damage Mm -hmm. to to our country, um, if they're coming to use our beautiful landscapes to make films, then see that as an issue. Yep, and our talent, and we have become very attractive, like you say, for this stuff. And the jobs, and we have the people here waiting for those jobs, and we've got so many people came back to New Zealand, of course, you know, from overseas um, before we locked down, and so we've got a wealth of talent here ready, and, and we could be making, you know, Netflix needs new new shows, that's for sure, because they're running out, I'm getting some boring ones at the moment, oh, you know. <laughs> I've been through everything, <laughs> I can tell you. I've been through everything, and we need more, we, we need more productions, you know. Mm. Mm. I remember that, right in the very early days, I think there was some cynical tweets saying, well, that's going to be crap TV for the next two years, then, isn't it? Like, right from the very beginning, they're already thinking forwards, like, oh, that's production halted, um, and all these things mm. but yeah, just to come back to that point I mean I guess I, I agree with you but then I think about okay so what does that queue look like then of the people who are going to come in right so we have something like 3,500 managed spots for quarantine mm-hmm. into New Zealand for people coming in right and they all need to be in there for 14 days mm-hmm. each time consecutively mm-hmm. right so we've got a queue of people who are going to be waiting to occupy those spots so then how do we prioritise? Mm-hmm. And I guess that for me, it's like, yes, there's the risks and benefits that need to be balanced. There's the risks of kind of, you know, contagion and mm-hmm. bringing cases in. We have to make sure that that's properly managed. There are the benefits, the economic benefits of trying to kind of promote, you know, what New Zealand can do, but also getting people in here to provide jobs and provide, mm-hmm. you know, that creative impetus and really thinking about, you know, driving that forwards. 
But then there's also the capacity and how, who gets to make those decisions mm. and the transparency around that. Because we've also got, you know, relatives of people who have actually the rights to come into New Zealand mm. or permanent residents who want to come back to New Zealand but are stuck in the queue because mm -hmm. they're now behind people who are now perhaps seen as a bigger economic benefit mm -hmm. in, the, in the short term. So I guess I would be thinking, yes, I agree with all of that, but I'd like to see a bit more transparency around how those mm -hmm. decisions are made and being actually open about that mm -hmm. uh, and then having that as a public discussion. Because yeah. I think that that's where people are feeling a little bit uneasy around, well, yeah, I get it, but, mm. you know, what about, the, what about other people as well? It comes down to fairness, doesn't it? Like, when yeah. we feel like something's unfair, that's often when we kind of yeah. get a little bit upset or angry because we think it's not fair. Why are you getting in, but he's not getting in? And, mm. you know, and I think that transparency that you mentioned is key to that. Yeah. And we often just don't have that. No. And, and it's very Kiwi, that fairness. Mm. Yes. Uh, that's one of the core principles of I the think time that I've been here. You know, equality is another word for it, but fairness mm. is a nicer, gentler word, mm. I think. And, and you see that in both, you know, giving women the votes early on, you know, LGBTQ stuff that really I think is a, such an inclusive society. Mm. Yeah. Definitely it's not inclusive across the board. Mm. We've got work to do on the fringes always. However, we probably are in a little bit of a bubble here in Wellington mm -hmm. where you can wander around and see same-sex couples mm -hmm. and people with wild hair and stuff like that. It seems very kind of liberal here. Mm -hmm. It's like going to Portland, Oregon, if you've ever been there. Uh, it's kind of like, yeah, this is the most un-American American city. This is what liberalism looks like in the nicest possible mm -hmm. way. But that fairness, I think, needs to be echoed throughout those decisions. That's, that's the thing. If you could be transparent with them, uh, but I'm also really concerned about the regional impact of these decisions as well. Because, you know, we got friends, I'm sure we all have, down in Queenstown, which has taken such a hit because of the amount of money that came from the Asia market to them in terms of tourism, which is now very much cut off. And they are set up specifically for, let's be honest, one type of dollar, mm -hmm. which is the tourism dollar. Right. And now, boom, that's kind of gone. Uh, so if you live in Queenstown at the moment, you know, talking about the constraints of creativity yeah. and feeling an ass sludge and stuff. Uh, and we've got friends who have tried to do different things down there. But I really feel for them. Mm. You know, it's just regionally you look around and there's some dis discrepancy about how we're helping other places out as well. I don't know what the answer is. Well, I think that's that I'm opportunity just... that we talked about to be creative and rethink things mm. and to have another plan and to pivot and to go, well, what are the resources we have? What is the talent we have? And how do we maybe use that in a different way from what we have traditionally done? Um, because, I mean, tourism isn't necessarily the best thing for our country, for our planet, for our world, you know? It's not necessarily the the number one thing, Um and so maybe there's different opportunities. And I often think, you know, because of creative sector, that there's opportunities that we could do more in the creative sector there and utilise it in an innovative way. I don't know all the answers. I just think it's rethinking, think right? Instead good. of just going, oh, let's yeah. put more money or force everyone to go to Queenstown for the next holiday, you know. Like, yeah. There must be some other options that yeah. we can think about. And I think it has forced us to look at that and say, well, actually, you know, just as we were perhaps too dependent upon agriculture and agribusiness, um, perhaps we have become too dependent upon the mainline kind of like of tourism. Yeah. Um, 
And, you know, I like what people like Trent are doing. You know, we both know Trent and, and ZipTrek in, in, in Queenstown. They're thinking about, well, actually, how can we serve our communities more? I'm thinking about, you know, having those sort of weekend sessions of musicians who then get the opportunity to get paid mm-hmm. uh, and then actually provide experiences. experiences that are for the local community. Yeah. It's not going to replace mm. by any means the amount of revenue that they were getting from those international tourist, um, tourist dollars. But I do think that this is, it's become a must now, you know, rather than just focusing solely upon those international tourist dollars. How can we leverage the beauty and the, and the opportunity to experience everything that New Zealand has to offer and repackage that in different ways so that people can experience that? Almost like, you know, if I was thinking about it as marketing, it's, you know, it's your lead magnet, mm. right? You know, so later on in, you know, when things have settled down, hopefully, then we can have you and encourage you to come into the country in a way that perhaps has less of a footprint mm. and not quite so dominant as it has been in the past. Yeah. And, I, and I think that, you know, if there was any kind of silver lining around this, is that it does allow people to really think about that, which is no comfort to the small businesses who serve all those big, big tourist centres who are really, really struggling right now. But we see that as well. If we think about tourism as a way of working, right? If we think about how we are now working and how we've perhaps experimented with different ways of working during mm-hmm. lockdown, I think, again, there's another big opportunity there in thinking about, well, yes, we want to encourage people into CBDs to kind of get people spending again. But if you look at Wellington, the amount of spending that's happened in the outer suburbs and in the outer town surrounding Wellington itself in the Wellington region, they've actually all gone up because people are staying local. And I think that that has now become like quite a big story around actually the localism and and actually staying local and staying in your own little neighbourhood. And the implications and the impact that that has upon that local economy. Yeah, and which is why I'm a little bit frustrated about this pressure for everyone to get back to the offices and back mm. to parliament and government and that end of town in particular, because I'm seeing that neighbourhoods and communities are flourishing. Yeah. We're more connected with our neighbours. I certainly am more connected with our local businesses, and yeah, and they're flourishing. Mm. So you know, it you know I. Like having a business myself, I know the pain, and you know it's it will be very sad for those people if their cafe, you know, at that end of town, maybe isn't going to work anymore. But maybe there's a new opportunity for them in the suburbs or something else, you know. And I just feel like we shouldn't just try and go back to what everything was before. Yeah. The new normal. Have... Come on, got to get <laughs> back there. We should be fluid. <laughs> In flux. In flux. Um, well, that was yeah. something I reflected on early on and I wrote a blog post uh, called The Global Pause and a chance to reflect and reset. Mm. The idea that we're all in a shared global experience at the moment and there's going to be a, a real urgency to get back to a normal thing. Mm. And I wrote early on, just for my own brain, not for anybody else, is just like, hey, is this an opportunity here to kind of reset and rethink mm-hmm. how we do live and work and interact with both the the environment? Mm-hmm. Do we need to travel as much? Can Because if you think about the environmental impact of cities just locking down, people not traveling and stuff, it's already been seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's rewilding, right? Yeah. You know, suddenly, you know, you've seen animals 
into spaces where they hadn't been for ages. Yeah. 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 But in satellite and the amount of data that yeah. they're going to collect from this global kind of pause is going to give the scientists even more, I think, ammunition in a good way to prove that, yeah, we are affecting the climate. And therefore, if you've given that, because no one could have just said, hey, for an experiment, could we all just stop yeah. <laughs> for a little bit? Because we, we want to test something. We want to record carbon and stuff. But this has forced us into it. So that's a, a positive. But then we think about our science psychological and sorry uh, social and and kind of um kind of who we celebrate in our society which are for the last few years is just like the silly people mm-hmm. i think you know celebrity and people like that and 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 now we're celebrating the essential workers mm-hmm. yeah you know and we're like okay the 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 kind of focus has shifted a little bit the way they should have always been is like common people mm. just doing their day-to-day stuff mm. but actually makes us all perform better or just live nicer in the world so i'm kind of hopeful that this is going to be a positive global experience once so we get over the, the silly kind of uh, leadership gaffes that come from it mm. as well the politic and the scariness of you know when it goes to indo-asia and all that other stuff which is just starting to see in south america yeah and you hope to get to some side of semblance of some kind of uh um, even though they they might not get there by some kind of um, antidote uh, for this, mm-hmm. there might be a kind of a reflective piece in the next couple of years to look back and go, actually that was a, a horrible time for us globally in terms of deaths and everything, but it actually gave us a chance to do this differently, mm-hmm. move forward. So whilst whilst we whilst you're talking about that, I was thinking, so how do you communicate that? Right, there's because you've got the data, you may have the knowledge, you may have the facts, but then how do you reach people with that? Right, when are you frame it? You mean to yeah, the data? Not, not even necessarily. Fra- but how do you connect with them when people are kind of like there's a there's this massive loss of trust in terms of what the mainstream media are telling people right now, you know, and it's happening all around the world. And I guess I've just detected a little bit of a trend, and I was particularly around the Black Lives Matter movement. What people will trust now more is the direct relationship that they may have with people who they respect or trust. Mm. Okay? And I've seen more and more influencer accounts signing over control of their accounts mm. to people like the Black Lives Matters activists. Yeah. Like, people or just you, we have the audience. Yeah. We have mm. the platform. Yeah. We think that you have a message that we think other people should hear. Mm. And they're not hearing it from other places or they're tuning out from it, even if they are. But people watch us and they trust us and we want to use our platform and for us to deliver a message which may be unusual for them to hear but we think is important for them to hear. And I think that that's an incredible opportunity. I love what you do with TEDx because you use a platform which has got an established brand, an established followership to promote ideas and to get people talking about things that perhaps they may not come across in their everyday lives. And I think on a wider scale, yeah, TED does that on, on their own platform. But the relationships that people have now with the people who they follow on Instagram, on Twitter, on YouTube, whatever, that people are spending so much more time in, in, immersed in those environments. And I think it's an incredible opportunity, but it also makes me kind of sad as well in terms of you know, the crap that people are kind of exposed to, the rabbit holes that they disappear down into. Um, based upon the algorithms that they're exposed to around what they think should happen next mm. and what they should be exposed to next. So I think that, yeah, there's real tensions around that. I love, I love the idea of being able to collect that data and be able to spread it, but whether people actually pay attention to it and get yeah. access to it is another question. Mm. 
comes back to my old kind of schooling about the medium is the message. Uh, the Marshall McLuhan idea that you now the medium used to be the message in terms of the news was trusted. Mm. So when you listen to something on the news, you add imbued kind of values and principles that is trusted. It's been, you know, fact-checked and gone over and presented in a way. But now that has been inverted in some way in the news because of 24-7 news cycles. They got ahead to if it bleeds, it leads, all that stuff. So they've lost themselves in that things and the news now is the medium is the message now of distrust of corporate kind of ideas and stuff and we're starting to see now the inverse happen online like you say with the influencers they are now the ones who have the 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 voice of the people in, mm. in that regards to a certain degree one example yesterday right there's a black footballer in the uk who is advocating for school meals mm. to happen during the summertime in the UK because they kind of stop from yeah. the schools, right? So mm. the kids who get free school meals um, will basically, because they haven't been to school for such a long time, now they're not going to be going to school over the summer as well, got into a massive argument with the government and they've U-turned within mm. 24 hours because of the followership that this yeah. guy has and the influence that he has in terms of changing government policy within 24 hours for the good of these kids. Yeah. You know, that, be used for good and evil, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> no, that's a good Peace. case. Yeah, that's yeah. Celebrate okay. that. Yeah. 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 It's fascinating. So what are you hopeful for, Jessica, um, going forward from this? Uh, I guess I'm hopeful that we'll take some of the lessons around what's really important to us, like family, community, friends. You know, I think there's been a resetting for a lot of people. There certainly has you know, for me, you know, and and being locked down and, you know, what are our values, again, to our why, you know, a time to rethink about what our why is. Um, So, you know, the environment, you know, I I really hope um, that, you know, people really take a moment to reflect and make change um, or take some of the change that they have that's happened over this last little while and continue it and don't just slip back and forget. I think similar. Um, I think some of the research that we did in Christchurch and Canterbury in the aftershock sequence and beyond and in the recovery shows how people started to value people and relationships more than things. And that was a pivot that they had in their value system. And it made them think quite clearly about their why. And they started to do things like changing jobs spending more time with their friends, spending more time with their kids. All of these different behaviours that came from what they thought and how they processed their experience of going through the Canterbury earthquakes. Now, there are pros and cons of that, right? You know, people had incredible pressure upon their finances, going through the whole EQC insurance nightmare, quagmire, trying to navigate through that. And similarly, I think that we're going to have the downs of that too, you know, people struggling to put food on the table. If we can get people through that, if we can support people through getting their basic needs met so that they are free to then think about, well, what does a good life look like to me now? What does a good life look like, what does a good life look like for our community? What does a good life look like for our nation? What do we want to be known for? What do we want to do? What are the opportunities that we want to grasp? And what do we want to leave behind? But also, what do we want to take forwards with us that we experienced during COVID-19 that perhaps wasn't the negative, but was the positive? that we want to take forward into, into the future. I'm hopeful that we'll leave the bad stuff behind, that we'll figure out and we'll look back at it and go, you know, that was pre-COVID and it was working then, but it ain't going to work now. 
And there's other stuff that we may want to take forwards with us. And there's new stuff that we may want to do too. But for me, it's the empathy, right? That was the overriding thing. It was actually, we were perhaps became a bit more aware of sacrifices that everybody else was making in order for us to create this sense of safety. And everybody was playing into that all at the same time. That, I think, was a beautiful thing. And I think it was an amazing feat that we managed there. And I would love for us to continue with that empathic, all of us serving each other in order to build a safer future, a more prosperous future together. That is so nice. Because there's something that that is so well articulated, something I felt but never could put into words. That kind of shared sense of an experience, but some hope there. There's some deep hope that we can all come together for the greater good, right? Without being all virtuous and religious about it. It's like, wow, that was quite spiritual. Definitely what we did. We all did look out for each other and we we understood it though. That comes again back to our leadership and communication, right? Mm-hmm. Like we were lucky to have a government that could, yeah. you know, for all, if you want to fault them on other things, fair enough. However, in this instance, they did communicate so well. Yeah. They, they explained it. They set out criterias that anybody could go, okay, I get this, and the reasons behind it as well. It was all so well done. When we look at other countries in the world, you can kind of go, oh. okay, we're bloody lucky. We were. Yes. I read that right. And yeah. even like the posters we had through the post and stuff early on, which detailed things, you know, it's just like, okay, get it. Yeah. It was so well done. That's cool. What about for you, DK? What is it that you would... Think about in the future. What's your hopefulness? I'm overly anxious. We've had this conversation at the moment for just the fate of the world. And the only attempt I can do to create that hope is by doing the stuff that, going back to your values, which I think I'm good at, and to add value in the world, which is curating and giving people voice. Those are the two things that I think I do quite well. You know, and I do it whether it's be through TEDx Wellington or creative leadership or just through this now. Um, yeah, I just really want to enable other people because the more you kind of grow up and move into the world, the more you find that conversation is the only weapon you have mm-hmm. and it's, it's the right weapon to use in every circumstance. And I don't mean a weapon in terms of like to beat people with, but just to, to help people with, to protect yourself, but also to, to battle with each other. If we just conversed in battles rather than anything else, great. I think we'd get somewhere in life. So I just want to learn how to converse better. That's for me is, you know, my hope. You know, and hopefully I didn't value. Thank you for asking. <laughs> don't know if I fudged that. No one ate the chocolate. I was quite surprised. No one dived in. I would have no, I was, well, I, I was kind of, yeah. It did, did go in my, in yeah, my mind a couple like of times. Like, it looks beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is the best as well. It's it is the best. Factory. I'm just aware of time and your time, so yeah. I want to thank you. We, again, we don't close out on any kind of thing. Let's all just find a, a spot to kind of fade it out. But I want to thank you for your time. Thank you. Both of you. No, thank you for the invitation. It's been, it's yeah. been lovely, actually. Yeah, it's been really nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's rare that you get the opportunity just to sit around a table, you mm-hmm. know, particularly if there's no kind of beer or wine involved. Yeah. Just, to have a bit of yeah, a, yeah. just have a bit of a chat. It's yeah. been great. It's really yeah. nice. That was the first episode of Creative Welly, produced by Empire Films and hosted at X Equals. Thank you for listening and devoting some of your ear time and brain time to this. You can sign up for more updates via creativewelly.com or anywhere you get your audio podcast from. 
We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time, so keep having courageous conversations with bold humans.